Welcome to Dosed, everybody. It's Sunday, May 15th, 1 p.m. here in Los Angeles. Thank you to everyone joining us live here on Colin. Going to be taking some calls later, so get in the queue while you can. We uh, just have an hour with Adam, so we're going to jump right into it. Here is Abby Martin, your host with Adam Conover. Do you ever get the feeling like everything you know is wrong? Or things that seem either random or even the natural state of things have pretty weird and sometimes insidious explanations. And the more you look around you, the more you realize what we've been told about so many ideas and institutions like charity, transportation, technology, things that control so many aspects of our lives are based on economic, political, or religious dogma. In fact, almost every facet of our society is built upon a foundation of myths. They're just baked into our lives and culture as if it's never been any other way. What would America be like if we stopped believing in its own myths and started facing the facts, wherever they may lead? This curious spirit and critical thought is embraced by comedian Adam Conover on his TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, where he takes ordinary topics and explores their fascinating origins and cultural mythos, managing to blow your mind while at the same time being wildly entertaining. Adam Conover is the creator and host of Adam Ruins Everything and of the upcoming Netflix series, The G Word, which debuts on May 18th. He's also the host of the Nickelodeon game show, The Crystal Maze, and of the popular podcast, Factually. I'm very excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to Dosed, Adam Conover. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Abby. Adam, everything you touch turns to gold, but I think Adam <laughs> Ruins Everything really takes the cake for me. I mean, thank it's you. such an incredible show in so many ways. It's well acted, with tons of hilarious comedians performing skits that embellish what you say you make a well-presented, fair case funny, which is a very difficult feat. And somehow you, you always um, manage to level out that hopelessness that comes along with the feeling like everything you know is wrong with a sense of optimism. And I feel like I relate to the idea in so many ways. Um, you know, for me, I've honed in on focusing on the myths of U.S. democracy, media, foreign policy, empire. But this show, Dosed, is kind of dedicated in the same vein as Adam Ruins Everything because mm. at the end of the day, I just want people to question what they think, question what they think they know, and broaden their perspective or deepen their understanding about something. So, Adam, I always start by asking guests if they have a particular Dosed moment, but I guess it's kind of funny asking you because every episode <laughs> of your show has dozens of them, but I guess was there one particular thing that you remember, like especially tripping out on or potentially putting you on the investigative path that you're on today. Oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, I've always been attracted to that kind of story, you know, the the story that demolishes what you think you know and, and makes you see the world in a new way. So, you know, the very first story that we did 
on Adam Ruins Everything, when it was still a web series at the at College Humor, the website where I was working, was the story about how the De Beers Diamond Corporation created the idea of a diamond engagement ring in the 30s and, you know, through massive advertising, embedded it in our culture. And now it's something that people just do, um, even though it was like, you, you know, it's basically, as the joke I do in the show goes, it's as though, you know, pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening, pizza at supper time, like wormed its way into our lives so much that we all just believed you had to eat pizza three times a day. Um, it's, uh, and, and when I learned that, I read it in an article, I don't know where, you know, 15 years ago, maybe. I think it might have been The Atlantic or Slate or something. I remember reading it online, uh, reading this story, and thinking, like, oh, this is unbelievable that, <laughs> that, you know, we're all – we've all fallen for this and nobody knows. And then when I was finally in a position to, you know, make my own media and I was working as a comedian in New York – uh, at College Humor and doing stand-up and trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to talk to people about? Okay, I can write a joke, but what should the jokes be about? Um, I was like, people need to fucking know this, <laughs> you know? And um, that that's where all of the original Adam Ruins Everything pieces came from. We, we uh, did an episode on circumcision, on the history of circumcision in America, which is bizarre, very strange that we do this needless surgery to, you know, uh, men in America that isn't done really anywhere else in the world, um, uh, except, you know, among Jewish folks where it has a different history, but there's a, you know, a very strange history for why non-Jewish folks do in the United States. Uh, dog breeds, uh, not existing things like that uh are you know th those were just like stuck in my craw and i wanted to share them with people and that's that's where it came from and so it's hard for me to pinpoint a specific thing that that did that to me because uh, honestly that feeling is what i look for in my right. work like when i when i uh, that is i'm trying to sort of hone in on that uh like i'm holding a dowsing rod or something um and when i start to feel that pull towards a topic um, then I know it's something that I that I want to talk about. Well, it's so awesome that you were at College Humor because for people in our generation, we remember that very well. It must have been really cool to just like be working at this website. You know, at at the time the internet was more of kind of an egalitarian space. Like mm -hmm. you created this web series that then be became this huge TV series. I mean, I just want to set mm -hmm. the stage for people who don't know your work because this is. This was one of the most like left wing political shows on television. It was a show that challenged a lot of the orthodoxies of capitalism, consumerism, advertising on a corporate media channel. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really amazing that you did this. Mm -hmm. I mean, first starting off at College Humor, then launching this on True TV. I mean, there are definitely segments in that show that people could expect to see like word for word on one of our segments. That's a pretty critical series yeah. and a left wing one. The show stood alone. And, like, yeah. you had so many episodes done. The archive is so vast. There's almost 70 episodes, and all of them are evergreen. That's what I yeah. love. It's like you could watch these 100 years from now and still be like, holy fuck. Like, how did I – what? Diamonds aren't rare, man? Like, what the <laughs> fuck? I mean, how did – like, talk about how you managed to do this and how surreal it was to actually successfully launch a show like this on corporate media. We know how corporate yeah. media is run, and we know the constrictions on corporate media. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you saying so, uh, first of all. And, you know, I hear from people all the time who, because look, the show first started airing in 2015 or so. And so people come up to me now, and the most horrifying thing is people come up to me and they say, I used to watch you when I was a kid. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I, I was I'm in my thirties now. I was in the thirties when I my thirties when I made the show. I feel like I'm the same person, but you feel like you grew up from a kid to an adult since the show came out? Holy fuck. Um but 
they'll they'll say, you know, your show. I've heard people say more and more recently, your show is like my on ramp into the left, right? And um, that really warms my heart. I don't personally align the show with left wing politics because I think it's not helpful to the show totally. to do that overtly. Because look, these are just things that are true, right? Um, these are th- and these are things that can appeal to anybody who's going to have their mind open. So I don't present it in that way. There's there's a big place for media that does. That's just not what I try to do in comedy. But I'm very very happy that it's had that effect on people. And so when people say. You know, when I, I don't know, when I hear people say like, uh, man, you're making a socialist show. Are you a socialist? And I'm like, <laughs> if you want to call it that, I'll take it. Right. I'm not going to I don't put an ist on myself, but, I, you know, I'm happy for you to say so. So I'm very I'm very happy that that uh, you that, that you felt about it that way in terms of the corporate piece of it. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, there's there's this sort of idea that people have that everything you see on television or in the corporate media of any kind is like dictated directly from the top. You know, the masters of capitalism will never let you say X, Y, Z. Right. And the fact is things are not that purely hierarchical. You know, it's it's capitalism is a big fucking mess, just like everything else, you know. And so you can carve out spaces where you are able to say things that you want to say. And that's what we were able to do with Adam Ruins Everything because of how we positioned it and, you know, because of what True TV wanted to do at the time. I mean, when we started making the show, it was sort of a high point for, uh, you know, political comedy, comedy that was about, uh, I actually don't think what we do is political comedy because we talk about everything other than politics. Um, But, you know, comedy that's really about things, that's really informing people, that's provoking them, etc., and True TV wanted to compete with Comedy Central. They were like, we want to be competing with The Daily Show and, and The Colbert Report, which were both still on at the time. Um, and so we gave them a way to do that. And we had proven success doing it, right? By um, on, on College Humor, all the videos, we made four sketches for College Humor before we made the TV show. All of them were enormously popular. And they were popular because they talked about, you know, the truth about, you know, diamond engagement rings in a really engaging way. And so... You know, the the corporate media, what it wants more than anything else is success and money. And so they said, oh, OK, we're able to we're going to be able to sell ads against this show because people really want this message. And we're going to, you know, so, so they, they gave us free reign to do it. And I had a conversation with them at the beginning with both the, you know, the heads of the network and with the advertising department. And I said, you know, hey, guys, we're going to be criticizing advertising on this show. That is like what we did in our you know, web series. That's what we did in our pilot. And that's what we're going to do in the series. And they all said, yes, we get that. We, we understand that's what the show is. And we have no problem with that. Um, now, we, we're very lucky that we were in a position where they gave us that creative freedom, where we were able to carve it out for ourselves. Um, now... There were conflicts later on in the show. There were times where they said, hey, we would really prefer you not do this or that topic. And I can talk about, you know, situations in which that happened. But, you know, what I do is I just went to the mat every time for those topics and fought for them as hard as I could. Um, And that's how I sleep at night. Um, My uh, my strategy as a communicator, as a comedian, when I'm doing these shows and I can talk about, by the way, how this affects my my new show, The G Word, is I always say, what are the topics that people will think we cannot possibly cover on this show? (laughs) What are the things that 
you know, people think the president of the network is going to kill that before it happens. And then we're going to try to fucking do those topics. <laughs> and I'm going to fu- I, I, you know, it's the it's the idea of it's a cliche. But, you know, when you go into the prison yard, find the biggest guy and punch him right in the nose. That's what I look to do. I say, what fight am I going to start and try to win? And even if I lose it, well, hey, I can still s- sleep at night saying I did the best I could under the circumstances, you know. Um, now, uh, there's, you know, an argument made, oh, if you didn't do it in corporate media, if you just, you know, photocopied a zine and passed it around, you could be a little bit more unfiltered. Yeah, sure. That's the case. Except you still got to pay Kinko's. You know what I mean? You always got to pay somebody. There's always some motherfucker who's going to try to get in your way. And all you can do is do the best you can, uh, in whatever situation you're in. And that's what I've always tried to do. Um, Absolutely. I mean, there's always kind of a questionable funding source, whether it's, you know, subsidization yeah. by certain advertisers or whatever, but it's it's doing the best that you can, given the circumstances, to put out the material that you really want to. And I feel like you are – you do stand outside of the pack because you have pushed the envelope on so many of these things. And I want to go back to something that you said, which is that the show was kind of meant to be apolitical and the issues take you where – wherever the facts lead. But the thing is, because of the dogma um, and the indoctrination of just anti-communist thought and and pro-capitalism and, you know, Mm -hmm. just all these bizarre kind of religious undertones or cultural mythology that surrounds all these uh, all these ideas, it kind of does naturally the inclination kind of does naturally move you left because, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just the way society has been built up. I mean, that's the foundation of everything, you know, is kind of this anti-left rhetoric that's just permeated so many aspects of our society. But let's just face this, Adam, um, is that corporate media consolidation did end up actually closing your show out. So even though you were able to do all these things, cover such excellent topics, unfortunately, there was a merger between True TV, which I think really stood alone as a network as well, and AT&T that cut about 100 or so employees and ultimately did ice your show out, even though it was Mm -hmm. hugely successful. Um, So, you know, there, there are a lot of problems, too, as this continues to, you know, basically just shelve more and more creatives out of the industry. Absolutely. And I, uh, you know, the, I've only recently started telling this story. The only time we were actually, actually one of two times we were truly censored, but this was the, the more serious one by uh, true TV was we did an episode called Adam ruins the internet. And in that episode, we talked about uh, the consolidation in the cable industry, how, you know, and the internet service provider industry, how those, how those companies have purchased each other. And then they carved up the country into different zones where they don't compete, right? Like charter spectrum does not compete with Comcast does not compete with whatever else, right? They, because they have, you know, here where I'm in Los Angeles, there's one choice of cable provider. Mm -hmm. And that's because they have divided the country up between themselves, which is like, I'm not sure how that's not a flagrant <laughs> antitrust yeah, uh, problem. Right. Like in other countries, you know, there's there's one set of pipes, but they force whoever owns the pipes to lease them out to um, any provider who wants to use them. And so the, the companies actually compete um, in the same way that when you had a landline phone, you could either have AT&T or you could get um, uh, whatever the uh, – I forget what the other companies were. But, you know, there, there was that sort of splitting up. There is not in cable television uh, and internet here in the United States. So the result is most people only have one cable provider. That It's extraordinarily expensive and the service is really bad. And so we did a segment on this, and the segment um, – 
we had uh, to depict mergers. We had a bunch of, you know, old white dudes in suits making out and then <laughs> like accurate. sort of into one, you know, one new uh, combined guy and et cetera. Uh, super fun segment. It aired. Then someone at Turner above True TV um, saw the segment and worried that it was going to anger AT&T because they were in the middle of the AT&T Time Warner merger. And they pulled the entire episode from reruns and from any kind of on-demand. It, there was, it wasn't on Netflix at the time, but you could watch it on-demand on your cable package or you could like buy it on Amazon or Apple. And they pulled it from all those services. And it was impossible to watch the episode for about two or three years. Now it's back on HBO Max because the merger closed and whoever, whoever that was forgot about it or probably was fired as a result of the merger merger done um, you're like okay now we can put it out like shit. yeah so now you can see it and i believe they like chewed out the head of the network over it you know like some people got in trouble and when i heard that i was like hell yeah <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> if you're if you're not getting people in trouble you're not doing a good job um but you know that was that was like i had no control over that you know yeah. um uh, but that was one of the two scenarios. The other scenario was we wanted to do an episode about um, the NCAA for our final season. Actually, no, it was our f- next to the last season. Wanted to do an episode. Um, uh, we did an episode called Adam Ruins College, and I wanted to do the NCAA because, you know, the NCAA does not pay athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the guy who came up with the plan to not uh, pay athletes went on to compare the system he came up with to plantation slavery. Like, it's just egregiously – it's a it's disgusting the fact that the people are not paid. I mean, I, you watch you watch one of these games, and these players are running around, and it's a you know there's a billion dollar advertising package. You look at every single person on the screen; they're all making money. Sportscasters are making money. The referees are making money. The league is making money. There's corporate logos all over the place. The only people not making money are the players. Oh, they get a scholarship. Guess how much a scholarship is to the fucking state schools in the South. <laughs> that these students are going to. How much is how much is one of those scholarships worth? At best, at best, say it's an expensive school, thirty or forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. You're telling me that forty thousand dollars a year is like a sufficient salary compensation for these people being on like two dozen of the highest rated live sports broadcasts of a year, four years in a row. Get the fuck out of here. Um, so we want to do a whole segment on this. Um, and we, you know, did what we normally do, wrote it up, sent it to the network. Normally they just check it, you know, give us a check mark. Um, but they said uh, that one, they came back and said, hey, do you guys know what um, True TV broadcasts every single March? <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys know, do you guys know what, um, what sports event is the only thing that puts our network in the black every year? <laughs> like literally, this is the one time of year we make our money. Yeah, we broadcast NCAA games. You can't do this. And I said, I'm not going to back down off this segment until the president of the network tells me himself that I can't do it. And the president of the network called me up and he said, Adam, you can make the episode. We won't air it. And I said, (laughs) "Okay, I'm not going to fuck everything up that much. I'm not going to waste my time and your time by doing that. And we wrote a different segment. Um, But then the following year for our series finale, I wrote an episode in which we talked about our show's relationship with advertisers. The fact that we're on corporate media, the fact that we are, you know, talking about. Uh, advertising on the show, yet our show is financed by advertising. We did an entire segment on that, and we dramatized, we told the story of how the network stopped us from doing the NCAA story, and we did a scene where I'm talking to the network president, and they're telling me I can't do it, and I'm saying that's bullshit, and they're saying, well, sorry, but we're not going to let you do it. And the network, because I had been with them for four years, and they owed me one, (laughs) they let me do that. So... (laughs) 
I'm like, great. That makes me, that's even better because now I have now I got to make my point and I get to tell a good story about corporate media. So you know, my my philosophy is. You, you can always make the best of a bad situation, right? There's no, there's no pure uh, platform to work on. I mean, who the hell owns – who the hell knows who owns the platform we're talking on right now, right, and where they make their money? But all we can do is do our best to get the word out and try to do it with integrity and with transparency in a way that hopefully communicates to the audience that we're, you know, that we're doing it right. Oh, um, exactly. And that we, yeah. Exactly. And, and you pick on yourself, too, not only in terms of, you know, showing this dramatization of you challenging management about the advertising and corporate media structure of the show, but you challenge things like comedy, Hollywood, the award mm-hmm. shows that I'm sure that you guys were also vying for. I mean, what I also yeah. loved is that you regularly used episodes to correct things that you may have gotten wrong in mm-hmm. previous ones. And of course, your big finale where you call out your own biases and potentially all yeah. of our own biases. And it's something that I really relate to because I know the anxiety, obviously not at your your level. You have like fucking a million projects going on right now. But I know the anxiety of having to work in something that's super heavily researched and also like the rigor of meeting deadlines every week. And then if you get like one little fucking thing wrong in a 30-minute episode and then you – I just – I can't stop thinking about it. I'm like throw the whole <laughs> thing out the window. Like we fucked up. Like – and it's just like I'm in this cloud. Like what can we do? Like it's already out there, this one thing. And it just – it's kind of a crazy neurotic thing. But I yeah. feel like you you have that kind of perfectionism as well. But then there's also something really comforting in your approach where at the end of every episode, you kind of are like, look, this it's like human nature. You know, our susceptibility to be misinformed or led astray it's not our fault necessarily. This is like the way the system kind of operates and especially with the new level of like kind of psychological manipulation with our data and all this stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. it's okay. Like we can learn from these things and you don't have to just be like, fuck, I know nothing. Like I'm just going to, you know, hang it all up. Yeah. I mean, all you can do is your best, right? I, I uh, it's, to some people that might sound like a cop out, but like that's why we tried to be very transparent about our process on the show you know we we put on the show we like showed our research and writing process on the show multiple times and we did multiple you know corrections episodes or episodes where we went over previous things um and sometimes they're dumb mistakes like one time we accidentally said the empire state building was 10 times higher than it really was because we added a zero (laughs) by mistake we said it was i I forget what what you know it was like instead of a thousand feet we said ten thousand feet or whatever um and uh, those numbers are also both wrong but um (laughs) you know and and then there were entire segments that we were like new information came to light and we said okay we no longer quite agree with our thesis on that segment and then there were ones that you know we felt that we honestly didn't get right you know and that we wanted to go back and talk about either because we didn't communicate them well enough or because there was some you know fundamental issue there um but like that's how you do it. But like no one <laughs> you know? does this. Like news anchors yeah. don't do this. And it's like, you know, you'll have yeah. you'll have people just like falsifying news constantly. And like you never see yeah. people be like, you know what? I was wrong. Like that is a yeah. very strange quality. <laughs> it's it's really weird. I mean, I don't know why they don't do it. Another thing that we do that like, you know, is not often done is, uh, you know, and we do it still in the new show. When, when we make a factual claim, we put a source up on the screen. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just a little bloop. It pops up and pops down. Um, And the reason I did that was at the beginning when I was just making the web series and I started putting those in, I was like, I'm just a comedian. Like, I want people to know that I, like, read an article. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) We, like, looked at a study. I'm not just saying this shit. And then also it's like, hey, 
if you're angry, don't get angry at me. Look, the New York Times said it. You know what I mean? Like, so go go get angry at the New York. I'm not a reporter, you know? Right, right. Um, there, there's that piece of it. Um, but then it also enables people to go look into the information themselves. And, you know, it when we actually do fuck something up, we know we in the audience know where the problem is. Yeah, there's occurred. accountability. Like and it and it gives yeah. people the reassurance that okay, I can I can follow up on this, I can research yeah. more about this. No, it's and, it, it's great. And most people on TV like don't do that, you know? <laughs> and, and on any level. Like like the new you know, news shows will do a rise poll and they'll show you that it came from the New York Times uh-huh. or whatever. They'll often do that. But like there's so many factual claims made on TV all the time where they don't bother at all. Hell, you watch um you know, if you, even if you just watch some reality show like American Pickers or something, and it gives you it gives you those little trivia pieces right before the commercial break. You know what I mean? Um, or it's like the Major League Baseball. Blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah. yeah. They don't they don't tell you where they got the information from. Like right. just it's very it's a very simple thing to do. Right. Yeah. It's um, not that hard. It's like just source your shit, yeah. man. Like yeah. Especially with stuff like that. Well, let's get into your new show. Please. Let's talk about your new show, The G Word. I watched the screener. Fans are going to be very excited to learn it has many of the same stylistic elements of Adam Ruins Everything. It's more on-the-ground investigative, which I was happy to see, rather than just being on a set. And you do some pretty fucking crazy stuff. Like, I mean, I think it was in the (laughs) promo that you're, like, flying through a hurricane in a plane. I mean, just one of many crazy experiences, I'm sure, of that you've had in like the three years that you were filming for the show on the road so talk about what the g word is all about some of the craziest experiences you've had filming and what you set it to accomplish with the show Right. So the G word um, is the, the, the titular G word is government. It's a show about the United States government and what it does. And the thesis is that, you know, we spend so much of our time arguing about politics. Almost none of us understand what the government actually does, like what the people who we elect to run the government are in charge of. Um, you know, the government is uh, the United States government specifically um, is incredibly vast. It's like the largest single by some measures, the largest single employer of any kind in the world. Um, it one in every 16 Americans, I think the number is, is employed directly by the federal government, not a state government, by just the feds. If you include the state governments, it's even more. Um and, it, and they're responsible for so many things, both good and bad, that like really fundamentally shape our lives. And so the idea is just to dive into that and investigate what those things are. I mean, we, we have six episodes, and each one is about a different part of American life, from food to weather to uh, disease, money. We have an episode called The Future, which is uh, about futuristic technology. Um, and then our final episode is about change, about how we change the government when it is not working or when it's you know, uh, killing us, as you know, the, uh, the American government is, in many cases, especially talking about criminal justice. Um, and uh, so we do it through a mix of Adam Ruins Everything style segments. One distinction is I am not playing a character on the show. Uh, on Adam Ruins Everything, I was a you know sort of know-it-all nerd, Pee Wee Herman version of myself. <laughs> on this on this version of the show, it's just me. I'm like, hello, I'm Adam Conover. Here's what we're doing on the show. Um, and uh, so we do, but we do Adam Ruins Everything style comedy explainers like that. And then I, I also go out into the field and uh, shoot with uh, different. Uh, folks who work for the government or who are involved with the government or affected by the government 
um, to get the story from them firsthand. So, yes, we went to a Cargill beef processing facility to see how USDA meat inspectors inspect our meat. Um, it's the first time they've allowed a camera crew in a Cargill facility in decades, by the way. Um, we were, like, really amazed that we were able to get in there. Uh, we went up with the Air Force um, with the Hurricane Hunters planes, where uh, you might not know this every time you're seeing a hurricane on the Weather Channel or any other source where it says, here's the hurricane and here's the direction it's moving in. And this is where it'll be in three days. The only reason they have that data is because a plane is literally flying back and forth through the hurricane, collecting the data and figuring out where the center what is. What the fuck? We and don't have that... drones for that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the drones are probably too small. But yes, right. good point. Um, like, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a plane with like 10 people on it and they fly through the U S air force does it. And Noah also does it. What the, was that the... like? You were in one of these planes. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I mean, it is a gigantic, like cargo plane. First of all, there's like no real seats other than jump seats that you strap yourself into when you're, when you're taking off and landing. Other than that, it's just like, you're, you're stepping around this, like, extremely functional plane there's like trip hazards all over the place you gotta like step over like beams and and uh wires and things like that um and then yeah they're just like all right hold on to something we're going into the hurricane now and then it's just (laughs) the craziest turbulence you've ever experienced you know uh one of the people from NOAA from the national hurricane center told me beforehand they were like most pilots, you know, they try to avoid turbulence. When there's turbulence, they're like, hey, sorry, everybody. We're kind of a little turbulence. We tried to go around, but it didn't work. In this plane, they literally are flying into the turbulence in order to measure how much turbulence there is. <laughs> um, and so it is just, you know, hours of you are being, you know, bounced around like crazy, uh, as you can see happens to be on the show. I was amazed I did not throw up. I thought I was going to throw up for the camera. It didn't end up happening, which I'm both happy and sad about. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and then, but the best part is, and you can see this happen on the show, you go through the clouds and you emerge into the eye. And the reason you do that is because they are trying to find the exact center of the eye. That is the sort of the whole purpose of the mission is to figure, find the exact center because that's how they can see, you know, where the center is moving. That's how they chart. You know, the direction of the hurricane to find out if it's going to make landfall. But when you bur- burst into the eye, you've been in dark clouds and you've been bounced around and suddenly it's completely calm and the sun is shining just down on the plane. You can see all the way down to the ocean, but ahead of you is just this circular wall of clouds, just like a chasm. Like it's like you're in the middle of the Grand Canyon, but instead of, you know, Canyon, it's clouds that are like reaching from the ocean all the way up as far as you can see. It's incredibly gorgeous. Um, like it's, it, it's stunning um to to get to to get to be there um and it's like just these eight people eight to ten people you know on this plane and then eight to ten people on all the other planes who get to see that (laughs) and uh they do it again like literally one of these planes lands another one takes off they're doing it over and over again whenever there is a plane whenever there's a hurricane um that's anywhere near the united states uh, and the only reason they do it, and I look, I know this is a left-wing show, right? So there's probably some folks who are cynical about the United States government, and <laughs> with good with good reason, right? The United States government does a lot of horrible shit, but also it just sends people on planes into hurricanes over and over again just to protect people, and of course property, but you know, people uh, is the main focus from this natural disaster, and like that's 
that at its root is what a government is like fucking for, right? Is <laughs> like everyone gets together, pools their money, says, okay, a hurricane hits us every once in a while. Let's pool our money together and pay the craziest motherfuckers in the country to fly into it over and over again and collect data. <laughs> And this is something that no company could have done. No corporation can get this data. The Weather Channel, it's everyone's too, glued. There's too much liability or what? It's like. It, well, it's, it's too much work, you know? Yeah. It's like it, they are using. So, yes, planes. They're also using government weather satellites, right, right. NASA satellites. Um, they, you know, the National Weather Service has like 80 to 100 weather outposts all across the country at which, you know, a dozen scientists work at every single one, like collecting data, analyzing it. You know, every, as we say in that episode, anytime you turn on any media source and you see the, you know, here's what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. The original source of that data is the United States government. No one else produces it and no one else could produce it. They, you know, AccuWeather or whatever, they'll take a little bit of the of the data and put a little sprinkle of their own analysis on top. But if there was no National Weather Service, we would not have any of this information because the, sco- the, sc- the, the, the scale of the undertaking is too large. And there's also no way to do it other than as in the public interest, as a public good. You know, if you try to privatize that kind of data, it's useless to people. If we had to pay to see when a hurricane's on the way. Um, so that sort of story made me, you know, profoundly optimistic, right? Uh, or it was made me profoundly uncynical about what our government does. Of course, we also do lots of segments <laughs> on the show about the horrible things that our government does as well, which we can we can talk about if you're interested. Um, but yeah, yeah it, was, I, it was one of the coolest things I've ever done. That is amazing. And not many people can say that they've been inside the eye of a hurricane. And also, I had no <laughs> idea that was a job. <laughs> like, I never yeah. knew that when I was growing up. It was, it was either you're an astronaut or you're now it's like you just want to be like a YouTube star. It's like, I want to fucking be that guy. Yeah, I want to be the dude who flies into a hurricane over and yeah. over again. Um, yeah, and and just to your point also about like the agriculture, the the episode that I watched the screener, um, you know, about going inside of this factory farm and just mm-hmm. understanding where your food comes from, because there's such a detached notion of just everything that the show uncovers and digs into is like every facet that you're you're exploring is something that we just do not understand, we do not see. It's totally removed from our just daily lives. And even the notion of government, the whole purpose of the show, like the G word, it's this bad word. We are totally detached from what government does and what it provides, because especially for someone like me, I'm hypercritical of the U.S. government and for all the bad things it does. But it's really important to understand like the good functions of it and what the potential is to solve some of the problems that we're facing today. Yeah. Let's get this out of the way because you're no stranger to controversy and you're no stranger Mm -hmm. to just approaching, you know, subject matter like this. So let me, let me throw it to you, Adam, because I know a lot of people in my audience will start watching the G word and right away they're going to see Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. You reveal, you reveal that he's the producer of the show and mm-hmm. so what are these people going to going to say to that? You know, what are they going to get out of watching a show about the government that's literally produced by a former president? Like, how do you navigate what right. is such an obvious conflict of interest and contradiction? Right. Well, so I'd compare it really directly to the story that I told you earlier about True TV, mm-hmm. um, which is that. You know, my goal in making the show was I only did the show because I was able to carve out a space in which I said, hey, I have editorial control of this show. You guys aren't telling me what topics to do. Right. And they said, yes, that is the case. Right. And I fought over the entire course of making 
the show in order to keep that space as wide as I could. And the reason, you know, I sleep at night and the reason that the show is airing and I didn't, you know, back out of it is because that is the case, right? Um, so the way the show came about is uh, that uh, Michael, Michael Lewis, the journalist, wrote a book called The Fifth Risk, which um, was, you know, a, lo- a big part of it was about all of these hidden things the government does that we're not aware of. Um, and I, I had read the book and I was like, well, it's a great book. Michael Lewis is an incredible journalist. Um, and then about six months later, I got a call from my manager saying that Barack Obama's production company, Higher Ground, has optioned this book and they want to know if I want to go pitch on it, pitch what my take would be. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the book and, you know, Adam Ruins Everything had been canceled because of the merger and I was like, I want to keep doing more comedy documentary, right? So um, I go in and pitch the angle that we're going to take an unsparing look at everything, how the government affects our lives for good and for bad. And they said, great. And we uh, pitched it to Netflix because uh, the Obamas had a big overall deal with Netflix. And, uh, you know, we started making the show. So the, you know, the show would not exist, right, if not for that story at all. So for me, it's a choice of, like, do I, do I want to not have the opportunity to tell these stories or do I want to have it under some conditions that are, like, as you say, somewhat conflicted? I think it's entirely comparable to me doing a show about advertising about capitalism under a show that oh, – sorry, under a banner that is advertising capitalism, right, as part of corporate media. Um, and so all I can do is try to create that space of creative autonomy where I can tell these real stories and make that really clear to the audience and uh, let the audience judge. Um, you know, so at the beginning of the show, you know, we have I have a scene. The point of that scene I have with Barack Obama is to make it clear we go back and forth. I say people are going to think the show is propaganda. And he says, OK, well, I'm not going to tell you what to say. You can cover whatever you want. And I say, OK, I can cover I can cover this and that, and I can cover military technology. And he says, yeah, it's your funeral. Get out of here and go do it. And that is honestly how the show, uh, how the show went and how it came about. Um, and so, so I'm trying to tell the audience that is our relationship. And um, I'm not sure how many episodes you watched, um, but we do topics on the show that Barack Obama is not happy that we did, right? Or at least he would certainly not choose for us to do. But I took that approach of, I am going to make sure that I do the thing on this show that nobody thinks that we could possibly do, and I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to win that fight. And that's what we did. Wow. So just to give you some examples, yeah, how, how, how many episodes well, did you I, I thought there was only the one in the screener. Yeah, I only got one from your people. Ah. Oh, I I'm sorry. Up, okay, great. Uh, well, no, I didn't amazing. know. I, I connected you. And, no, that was amazing. I, I, I didn't know how many they sent. Yeah, yeah. No, tell, tell, us, um, tell us what we can expect. So in, so in the episode on uh, the future, we do a segment on drone strikes um, because that was the thing that I knew that nobody Oof. thought that we could do. So, so when the show was announced, people were like, who, you know, are trying to score a point off me. They're like, yeah, are you going to do a segment on drone strikes, Adam? <laughs> yeah, we fucking did it. All right. So shut the fuck up is my sorry. Now, now I'm just <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and we talk about like we give a very straightforward, like the consensus position among people who study drone strikes are that, you know, the the uh, invention and promulgation of this technology, which increased tenfold under the Obama administration, as we say on the show, led to countless civilian deaths because it was basically a moral hazard. The ability to do these strikes with so little cost to American lives means that they were ordered way, way, way more often. And, you know, tons and tons of people uh, uh, are, you know, have been killed as a result. We make an allusion to uh, the, uh, the, the drone strike of a wedding that happened, um, uh, you know, just to, like, uh, signal to the audience that we know that, that that's what we're talking about. 
And look, that was not easy to get on air, right? I'm sure because it was not. Because I'm not working directly with the president, right? But the people who I work with at his production company work for him. And so they were very, oh, you don't want to do this. And I was like, yeah, no, I, uh, we're going to do it. And, uh, and they were like, what if you didn't? And I was like, this is, if we don't do, this is the most important segment of the entire show. And, you know, you're going to have a big problem if you don't let me do it. I didn't have to threaten to walk, but it would have gotten to that point, And they knew that it would have gotten to that point. Um, and so, you know, they, they were like, we're going to have a lot of notes at the end of the day. They didn't because we were doing again, an extremely mainstream argument, right? Like, if right. You, like the literature on this is super clear. Um, and, uh, I, the, the most out of body experience I had about it was I only talked to the president two times. Um, one was when we shot the the segment that you saw. The time before that was he had read all the scripts and he wanted to share his thoughts. And all of his thoughts were, you can take them or leave them. The very, you know, the most the most uh, political guy in the world. You know, he's like, I have a couple thoughts. You can take them or leave them. Um, most of them were just, you know, very simple, nothing big. On the drone strikes, he ended up talking about half an hour about like just telling me, here's why we did what we, you know, and and we think it was the best thing to do. And I had to be like, Okay, thank you. Respectfully, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> and, Telling Obama, and we did it. dude, what? That's so surreal, yeah. man. Holy and we shit. did it. You know, we made we tweaked the copy a little bit, but we did the segment. You know, so um, and and episode six, by the way, is an entire. Uh, it's our episode on change. Our uh, we do an entire profile of. Um, uh, well, actually, first in that episode, I have a conversation. I do an interview with the president and I hold his feet to the fire a bit as, you know, uh, about things that I was like upset about. And we had what I think was a really interesting conversation. You can watch that as well. I didn't go, you know, ruffle his hair, hair Jimmy Fallon style, you know. And, um, uh, and then we end that episode by profiling Reclaim Philadelphia, which is a, you know, leftist slash progressive organization in Philadelphia that is like taking over their city government. Um, uh, they were the people who got Larry Krasner elected, who's the progressive prosecutor who um, is, you know, transforming criminal justice in that city. And, you know, that that's an organization of Bernie people. Right. And and so, like, those are all things that, you know, that's not the stuff that that, you know, his organization would have written themselves, but they hired me and that's what I'm going to do. Um, so if now I'm really excited for everybody who's listening to this, for your audience and people who are, you know, in a similar sort of headspace to your audience to see it. And if they think the show is full of shit, I'd love for them to tell me. Um, I, I think that we did, you know, the best we could under the circumstances. Um, and I'll accept any criticisms that come my way. Right. Um, uh, I think there's a, there's a really complicated nuanced conversation to have about the role of a former president in media right i think there's there's a lot going on there um but you know at the end of the day i'm just trying to say shit on television that i think is helpful <laughs> right and i'm like there's a compromise to be made here like this is there there is a conflict here but i think that i can still work do it with integrity you know, um, and, well, and I love carve that out just, the space that I need. You faced it right out of the gate, to. dude. You, I mean, you just, you show it yeah. right out of the gate. Like, that's what I love about it. You're just like, look, <laughs> you know, you're not waiting for people to see yeah. his name at the end. You're like, let's just face this right now and address the most controversial aspects of Obama's presidency. And I yeah. love that. I mean, the, the thing for me is Thank like, you. I was formerly at Russia Today. I 
you know, I challenged my employer back in, I think it was 2014, when I told him, I was like, if you don't let me say a statement about the Crimea incursion, I'm walking. And I risked yeah. my job that day to make a statement against Putin and against what Russia was doing to annex this territory. And what I realized after all the dust cleared is that a lot of people just don't have integrity. Like, I, I know that a lot of people think that they yeah. do, but it's like, will you put your job on the line? Will you say that you're going to walk if you don't put this statement out there, if you don't challenge whatever the reigning orthodoxy or whatever is in whatever you're trying to push? And I think that this is a very clear example of you making the best possible thing out of a situation where the former fucking president is offering to sponsor the show, a revitalization mm-hmm. of Adam Ruins Everything, and kind of, a, I'm sure, very good budget. You had the opportunity to do so much. It was and okay. a lot of creative control. <laughs> but, like, there's this huge elephant in the room. And, like, the fact that you were able to navigate that and still walk away with your integrity saying, I did this, and I put that in there. And if it wasn't yeah. you... I doubt that there would be anything about drones and whatever show came out of this book. I mean, it's really of incredible that you were able to do that, Adam. And, you know, what I got out of the at least the first episode was like, I mean, it's not really about politics in, in the sense of what's going on in Washington. It's more about like this massive apparatus that exists, like consisting of the tens of millions of workers that you mentioned. One out of every 16 mm-hmm. people work for this government. Like, what do they do? How does how does their job allow society to function? What value do these jobs have? Like, you know, the regulations on the meat industry. Obviously, it's a political thing in terms of deregulation. But your show is actually about like who is in the factory who is there yeah. doing this work, ensuring that nobody gets sick? And so I guess, you know, it's really interesting because this is all being done in the context of these institutions being very much under attack. Like, this is the yeah. strategy of not only Republicans, but a lot of Democrats, too, because this is neoliberalism. Like, sabotage mm-hmm. government-run arenas like the post office. Don't even get me fucking started on that. The VA healthcare system. Get them <laughs> underfunded, right. understaffed, so then they can turn around and be like, look, big government fails. It doesn't work. It's overly bureaucratic. We need to privatize these things to function better. And then on the other hand, yeah. Adam, you mentioned this. I mean, there are a lot of overly inflated, corrupted, and dangerous sectors of the government, especially our government, Border Patrol, DHS, which is a totally yeah. new agency in the last 20 years, the FBI, NSA, police, and of course, the fucking Pentagon. So I guess, how, like, how did this show help you understand those two things, both what it would mean to certain sectors of the government if it lost funding and or was privatized, and then seeing the good things that are possible through these government institutions, but also the fact that there are elements of the government that do need to be defunded and demilitarized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the thing that I found, the hardest thing in this show was to come up with a final statement at the very end about like what the government is, right? And what our relationship to it is. Because the fact is, it's so massive that, uh, and it, there are so many contradictions, contradictions within it that it's very difficult, nigh impossible, to say just one thing about it. So in the first episode, as you say, we talk about the USDA and we talk about how there was rampant poisoned meat, right? Just people dying of, of food poisoning. Until the government finally said, we are going to send inspectors into every single plant in the United States and we are going to inspect every single piece of meat and they're going to be there on the line. And 
they have like a button they can press whenever they see something wrong and they can stop the entire line, right? And if you're a fucking factory foreman, you don't want that to happen, right? Because it means you're losing money. Um, but they have that ability. And that's just like, you know, the, the government is an extremely powerful, effective regulator saying we're going to force our way in here. And we're, you know, uh, we're, what I'm trying to make people think is what if we did that in more places, right? <laughs> what if we did that in more areas? If we said, no, hold on a second, the public is going to step in here and look out for the public good. There's lots of examples where the government does exactly that. And there's like nothing else going on there, right? At the same time, the USDA itself overall is an enormously conflicted agency because the USDA's focus, as we discuss on the show, has always been to promote the needs of farmers or food producers, right? And right now, we're really talking massive food companies, not small farmers, over the needs of the people who actually eat the food. And so we talk about, you know, there are massive subsidies given to farmers starting in the Great Depression era. Those subsidies still exist today, but we're massively subsidizing, you know, these the corn, bulk wheat, stuff like that, um, that A, are fed to farm animals um, in, uh, you know, these horrible conditions that the USDA allows to continue. Um, and they're used to make horrible food for, you know, uh, processed foods that are that are making us so incredibly unhealthy. Um, and both of those things are true at the same time. And it's the same agency. Right. And so what do we what do we take away from that? That was what we were wrestling with on the entire show. Um, the episode that we do about drone strikes is about how uh, that's the episode called The Future. It's episode four. And um, the sort of overall arc of the episode is that, you know, the tech industry tries to take uh, uh, tries to take credit for all of our incredible technological innovations, when in reality, a huge number of them were designed and are still operated by the United States government. The one we talk specifically about is GPS, right? The entire GPS system, every time you, you uh, open your phone um, or use a GPS feature on it in, in your car or any other product, they're in, embedded in everything now. Your phone is tapping into a public network that is run by the United States government. The government runs the GPS satellites, and they allow every device on the planet globally to use that network for free, like zero dollars. It's a pure public utility that is run for no other reason than it makes everything better to have it, right? It's one of the most transformative innovations of human history is GPS, to be able to put a tiny receiver in things to, and to know where they are anywhere on the planet within like a very you know, small window of accuracy. Unbelievable. However, the same department that developed GPS is DARPA. And DARPA <laughs> Also, right here, you see where I'm going, right? Yeah. DARPA also invented lots of other incredible things, right? <laughs> Graphical user interfaces on computers, da 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 da. They also invented drones. They invented Agent Orange. They, you know, it, like it's a it's an organization that was put together to develop better ways to kill and maim people. Um, and without DARPA, we wouldn't have had either. We wouldn't have either of those things. And um, the question we end with is. And by the way, GPS began as military technology. That was its original purpose was military. And so the question we ask is, you know, our government has this incredible innovative power when we put public money into public research, right? Um, so you can say the same thing about the national, you know, uh, um, uh, the NIH and all these incredible organizations. The internet where in we general. Devote massive you know? Internet in general, right? The Department of Energy is the most important funder of, you know, green energy initiatives. Because if it's not them, who else the hell is going to research it? Um, the NIH is the high, is the most uh, the largest funder of biomedical research in the world. Um, it's you know saved countless lives, et cetera, et cetera. But why is it when it comes to DARPA? Why do we only invest this money when it is for national defense? Why do our greatest inventions have to come out of the barrel of a gun? Why can't we just put 
money into things that we actually need rather than new ways to kill each other? That's the question that we ask. And, you know, that's as far as we get in answering that in that episode because it's 27 minutes of television. And we're trying to raise the question for people and make them ask it and make them start to wonder it next time they see, you know, a pie chart of the U.S. budget in front of them. Um, you know, and that's, that's sort of, you know, we could, we could have done a whole series on that on Netflix. That's as far as we got in that particular episode. Um, but so that's the, that's the fundamental question that we're wrestling with throughout the whole thing. And episode six, the episode on change starts with me asking, you know, the government has done such incredible things for my life and everyone else's life. It's also killed and hurt so many people across the world and Americans here at home. We start talking about the criminal justice system and, and, you know, police killings, um, and so how what do we what the fuck do we do about it? Right. How do we how do we change our government when it's so massive and it contains all these contradictions and we're so small? And that is why uh, I go and talk to Barack Obama and ask him that question and pressure him. Why did we did not see more change under his administration? And that's ultimately why we go and profile Reclaim Philadelphia in Philly, because they are people who are actually changing their city government. Um, which is the most important government when it comes to uh, co- comes to mass incarceration and criminal justice. And they're really doing it. Um, and so that's our attempt to answer that question. Yeah, Adam, I just wanted to jump in here real quick because I um I think for me, one of the reasons I think the show is important for people like like me who are socialists and something they can get out of it is because it, it helps us understand, of course, what this apparatus is, but what could we benefit by expanding certain elements of it? Like, for example, so I'm a mm-hmm. I go to the VA hospital because I'm a veteran and I've been going there since 2005 when I got out of the army. And so I have a an idea of what a state run healthcare system is like. And it's great. I mean, obviously, it has its issues because it's, as Abby mentioned, underfunded and understaffed intentionally, uh, primarily by the Republican Party so they can say that it that it fails. But I have the experience of being under a national healthcare system where I can walk into any VA hospital in the country if I'm traveling, whatever, walk in, they have all my stuff, they treat me, I don't get a bill. Um, And so as a socialist, like I could see how that institution can be expanded. You know, if we put more money into the VA and you didn't have to be a veteran to qualify and we start qualifying more and more people in sectors of society who need it to be under the VA umbrella, you know, it helps me like conceptualize what that would look like in the real world of creating kind of a change we want to see. And so, you know, it, uh, it, it brings up this question, like we hear about big government a lot and your show really talks about the true scale of government, which is really mind-blowing like when we're talking about like the one plant that you went to like they slaughter like 500 cows a day 5,000 cows a day Mm -hmm. just in that one one plant and it's like just to wrap your head around like how many cows it takes actually that's actually the food demand they're not like throwing most of that away it's like actually what the demand of food is like you have to have this really sophisticated the scale is just kind of mind-blowing when you think about it uh what it takes um but so government's really big but could it be bigger? And I think we, you know, would benefit from it being bigger in, in a, a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Sorry, Abby, go for no, it. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I, I agree with you. Um, and you know, a lot of the show is a, is a call for that kind of investment. Our um, episode on disease, we do an episode on disease and what went wrong, went wrong with COVID, um, and a big. Part of it is that we've defunded our local public health systems um, for decades and decades. Um, and I, by the way, make a direct comparison between that and, you know, defunding the police like um, the, you know, most politicians like Republicans and Democrats voted to defund public health, but they would not do that for the fire department or the police department. Right. 
Um, and as a result, like, you know, when people say, you know, couldn't get tests or there were long lines for vaccines or things like that, it's because like across the country, we don't have the public health infrastructure that we need. Um, and we should massively improve it, right? We should massively direct money towards it. I've been, you know, I'm a public transit rider here in Los Angeles and, you know, I'm a real advocate for, if we poured, if we poured 10 times the amount of money we currently spend on it, people would say, by the way, we have a better public transit system here than people normally think. But if we actually invested into making it better, it would improve everybody's lives immeasurably. Um, it, you know, it would be a short-term cost for a long-term gain. Uh, and that's something that I really believe in. I really try to advocate for Now, I think that you folks like you and me who share this belief also need to grapple with the fact that like a lot of shit that the government does, we don't like and nobody mm-hmm. should like. <laughs> right. And we need to figure out how to make sure that at the same time that we're trying to expand the good things that we reduce the bad things. And and that's like, you know, an internal contradiction that we um uh, you know, I think we need to face more head on. Um, and this show is, is partially my attempt to do that. Um, a lot of times the government, the, the bad things are because of, you know, corporate interests, like bending things towards them. And we tell a lot of those stories on the show. But, you know, that's not why we that's not, not why the government invented drone strikes. You know, um, that's that's for a whole other message of reasons. Um, so, uh, you know, but but yes, I agree with you. That is like one of the messages of the show is trying to raise the question like, hey, there are so many. If we make visible the parts of our lives that only exist because of socialism, basically. Right. We mm-hmm. like it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty socialist thing to do to send inspectors into every for profit meat factory in the country. Right. We have a socialized weather system. Right. Where we have government scientists who are detecting all this shit for us, you know, um, who are who are actually measuring the weather. Um, we have a socialized GPS system. Um, if we can make that apparent to people, they might be a little bit less surprised when we propose, you know, expanding, uh, you know, single payer healthcare to everybody. Um, because yeah, it, it, it should work just as well. Shouldn't it? Um, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, there was a time when the new deal, which was a hugely successful big government program was embraced and actually was the solution to a lot of problems. And then of course, this ideology shifts into big government is the source of our problems rooted very much in anti-communism. And it's just a lot to unpack. Um, where all this propaganda came from and how we're kind of back to square one where we're trying to tell people like, no, this is good um, to have social services expanded. It's good to have things like health care for all. Um, it's good to have inspectors regulating whether or not uh, our food is poison. And it's really kind of an, a stark insight for me, at least, on like what unfettered capitalism could look like because i think that to your point there is this negative association with government not just from of course right wingers for a a array of different issues but i think a lot of people on the left have um critique of the u.s government for exactly the reasons that we do you know our foreign policy Mm -hmm. apparatus is massive we have half of our discretionary spending going to war death and destruction this is a massive empire with a thousand military bases around the world that is basically just squandering all of our resources to do horrific things, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's so fascinating to see that, you know, um, like, for example, like one of the Adam Ruins Everything episodes was about like something as simple as like mattresses, right? Like why do mattresses Mm -hmm. have these big annoying tags? And it's like so funny to think of like something that you would never give a second thought to, 
but mattress companies used to just stuff mattresses full of fucking trash or whatever, like whatever they did, like straw, <laughs> like, yeah. like garbage on the ground until the government passed a law saying you have to verify what these mattresses are filled with. And that's why these huge tags are on mattresses. So I guess my point is yeah. that like if it were just left to corporations regulating themselves, it would be a pretty terrifying world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and we're, the goal of that show is to point that out. Um, and by the way, but this is the, I won't tell the story many places, but just because you've said the phrase many times, uh, my original title I wanted for the show was Big Government because th- that's what the show's about. Um, and Netflix was like, that sounds very political and the show is not that political. <laughs> like this, that sounds like it's going to be a right wing, left wing show. You know what I mean? And, and like, that's not what we want the show to be I'm like. OK, that's fine. You know, they, they really give give a big shit about the title. Yeah. Um, but that's like the theme. Right. Um, is that like we use this phrase. What does it really mean? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like it, it's it's a our government, our institutions have had a multi decade long you know, smear campaign against them, uh, that the government can't do anything well, while meanwhile, you know, the the worst parts of the government are given free reign to go do whatever the fuck they want. Um, and, you know, the the whole point of this show is to is to shift that narrative and to let people know, hey, if it weren't for us looking out for each other, that's fundamentally what the government is at the end of the day, right? And um, what it or should what the, be, what, yeah, exactly. What it should be, yeah. I use the phrase, on its best days, that's what the government is. <laughs> Many times on the show, because that's what we're talking about, you know, um, uh, we, you know, we talk about, say, the FDIC and how the FDIC literally you, like I, there's another segment I do. We go with the FDC as they take over a failed bank. Right. Um, the FDIC literally forces the banks to pay into a fund. It's not paid for by taxpayers. The banks all have to pay an insurance premium to the FDIC, and the FDIC uses that insurance premium to guarantee everybody's money in the bank. And when a bank really fucks up and it's going underwater, the FDIC shows up like unannounced at 5 p.m. on a Friday and says, the bank's ours now. We have – like you, you, you don't run the bank anymore. We do. Um, and like that's incredible. And the only reason they do that is because before they started doing that, people would just lose all their money in bank runs. Um, and so the only reason to do that is to protect people, right? Um, and if we tell that story that like, hey, that is what the government is on its best days, they might go, oh, maybe we should have it do stuff like that a little more often. <laughs> hey, not for nothing. That's a good idea. I'm not making fun of that guy. I grew up with that guy, just to be clear. <laughs> I am that guy. Um, yeah. Let me, I want to wrap, and then we have one caller in the queue. If you, if you want to take off, I totally understand. I want to respect your time. But I just wanted to leave you with some closing thoughts and, and have your feedback on it because – you know, I feel like your entire approach is kind of through the lens of like critical media literacy and like critical mm-hmm. thinking. And it is a really interesting time, especially as a media critic myself and, you know, starting off as an independent journalist, starting my own media organization because of what I saw happening with corporate media and sidelining marginalized voices and issues that mm-hmm. I felt like were really important. And then you have Trump come into power, popularizing this term fake news, taking this kind of more historically left, I guess, critique of corporate monopolization of our media, making it superficial, making it partisan, making it only about media outlets that didn't support him. But at the same time, we have like a historic distrust in our institutions in this country because of all the lies, 
like it's really fascinating because we need to have people on an equal playing field about like what reality is in order to educate people, in order to Mm -hmm. encourage people to have critical media literacy and stuff like that. But how do you like suggest that we navigate the reality that we face today? Because I feel like people are becoming increasingly fissured from like a reality that we can agree on and build upon things like QAnon or that, I mean, even as something as simple as like the Democratic Party are communists, you know, something that like Governor DeSantis is talking about, the groomer stuff, um, yeah. the Democrats are eating babies. I mean, it gets really wacky here, but like, I feel like your whole approach is like people are rational. And the whole premise of your approach is like, let's all get educated or like, let's mm-hmm. think twice about things that we may that think that we know already. And so I, I guess I'm feeling kind of despondent like how do we move Mm. forward from this point in time yeah and also Uh, maybe myths are necessary for social cohesion maybe people just need to believe (laughs) in something to be functional and happy like they don't want to be destined to be miserable like us adam (laughs) well look first of all i don't think that myths are essential to the functioning of society i think that um beliefs are Mm -hmm. right stories are Mm -hmm. um but the stories can be true rather than false um, so one thing, you know, we did on Am Ruins Everything um, was we always tried to replace the false story with an even better story. So if you can tell people, hey, that story you've been told is not true, the the truth behind it is even fucking crazier, right? <laughs> they will always, almost always replace the bad story with a good one. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, now, you said that I feel that people are inherently rational. I actually do not. <laughs> I think that people are... <laughs> I think that people are incredibly irrational, and as am I, right? We're all subject to – I mean, if we were all rational, then the libertarians would be right, and everyone would just maximize their own well-being at every moment of the day, and you know, therefore everything would be great. But unfortunately, people fall for lies, and they do things that don't make sense, that harm themselves, right? That, that, those things are true. However, I do believe that people are – fundamentally good and i believe that people are fundamentally you know on average right and people are fundamentally open like there's a way to speak to people that will open their minds you know and so my approach is always to say at the beginning of this show i say okay i know i know you're you have all these thoughts about the government you probably hate the government but don't you want to know what it does like isn't that kind of weird that we don't know what it does like aren't you kind of curious like don't you want to like come along and just like see Like, who's going to say no to that, right? Um, And once they have said yes to it and they've come along with it, well, now – and then I I have a good joke that makes them laugh and their defenses go down, right? I have a chance to to share with them a different perspective. I'm not going to get to everybody, but I think I can get to a lot of people that way. Um, And uh, that's – I think that's how you do it. Um, The the other thing I'll say is like, look, we can't – we cannot any of us address – the fact that trust in institutions is declining overall. You know, this show is my best attempt to do so, but like we can't go around and, hey, everybody, we need to increase our trust in institutions or whatever and like stop joining QAnon. All you can really do is focus on your little bit, you know, and try to be the counterexample in the world and try to show to people uh, that this thing works, right? Um, and so uh, I've been trying to focus a lot in my own personal activism as well to just like do the work of making it work on a local level. You know, um, the, the, if you want to increase, you know, you know what people all love, you know what nobody says is cheating them or lying their public library, 
right? Mm-hmm. Everybody loves the library. You go into the library, you're like, oh my God, I can just take any book home. Anybody can use the computer. It's incredible, right? And that's because librarians and people who run libraries have an incredible daily daily work, daily persistence in making that institution work for the people who walk in the door, right? That's all they do. They're not trying to focus on, hey, how do we get Democrats to win the election? Maybe they do in their personal time. But for their job, they show up and they say, hey, how – we have unhoused people in our in our neighborhood. What do they need? Oh, they might need to use the computer. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. let's make sure the computers are working. Um, and like that's that's something that a we can show. Like I try to do in the show. Other examples of that, like the GPS system, or like um, you know the National Weather Service, that will give people that pride in common uh, institutions that you know public institutions that we all hold in common that we can support together. Um, and then B, we can try to build new institutions like that. We can try to build that example. So, um, you know, here in L.A., I'm really involved in work around homelessness. And I, I supported a, an insurgent city councilwoman who, you know, was running with the DSA and, um, you know, running on an actually effective evidence based solution to homelessness. And now that she is in office and unseated the incumbent in a huge upset, she is going from corner to corner, from encampment to encampment clearing encampments not by sending the bulldozers and pushing them you know off to the next block but by actually setting them up with permanent housing going to people one at a time and saying what do you need oh you're in a couple and you need so you need to be housed together right and what are you looking for what neighborhood would you like to be in etc right doing the hard work of getting folks into permanent housing one by one and she's having enormous success doing that. And then she's publicizing that. And people around the city are starting to go, oh, that works a little bit better than when my fucking council member sent the cops and the bulldozers and pushed them down the street. You know? Um, and, and so all we can do is show the better example. And it's going to be – it's going to take each of us doing a lot of little work in our own communities, right, day by day making that happen. But the great part about that, and by the way, this is what episode six is about when we, when we profiled Reclaim Philadelphia. The great thing about that is that is work that each of us can show up to every day. We don't need to, we don't need to fucking get Nancy Pelosi to do shit to make that happen. You know, we can show up and, and start doing it. And once you're actually immersed in that work, once you're actually showing up to those meetings and getting that work done, uh, that to me is the antidote to pessimism because you can't sit around. It's easy to sit around and be pessimistic when you've got nothing to do all day. But when you have a committee meeting at 5 p.m. and then at the committee meeting someone says, hey, can someone take lead on this? And they say, yeah, Adam, how about you? And you have to do that. You don't have time to be pessimistic, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you are actually doing the work, even if it's on a very small scale. And so that's what I try to urge people to do. Well, exactly. And you could sit all day online and just complain about you know the, the media spectrum today or the, the lack of policy in your community. But at the end of the day, yeah. like you can do these things. You you media is so accessible today that you could just do the media that you want to see. Like you said, I mean, yeah. these are how unions form. These are how these union yeah. drives become successful is grassroots, mm-hmm. local organizing door to door, person to person. It, it, I guess above all, as we wrap this up, it, it just really it's really instructive for me because, as I mentioned before, I mean, I focus mostly on foreign policy and what, you know, taking away from this conversation and your show is that it's not binary the issue of government is very complex. There's a lot of nuance there. There's a lot of good and mm-hmm. bad. And, you know, when you're looking at like deregulation and, and the dysfunctional nature of the government and why it, it does what it does, like when it comes to things like climate change and healthcare, care, um, that's a problem that, you know, we need to all organize a solution for. It doesn't mean that less government 
is necessarily the answer, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Adam, thank you so much. Adam Conover, well, creator, host of Adam Ruins Everything, upcoming Netflix show, The G Word. We're going to take a guest call. Um, Can I stick around for up. the first call? I feel like it's I feel like it's a call in show and I shouldn't leave oh, before. Of, one of call course. Him. And I just wanted to also just wrap by saying, you know, the, the problem, like we mentioned before, about corporate media consolidation and how devastating that was and actually personally affected you as well as so many other people. My whole point about what I was trying to say before is like government is the solution to that. Right. Government was the problem yeah. with deregulation of the media. But government is really the only entity now that can save a free and fair media for us by breaking up these massive monopolies and and actually um, providing, you know, more accessible playing field for all of us. And so we need to really push for those policies. Adam, let's let's hear from our one caller. We have so a bunch far. of callers in the queue, but oh, we're just going to wow. take one call for Adam. Steven, oh, you have been in the queue since the beginning. Come off mute <laughs> and tell us where you're calling from. Thanks uh, from Colorado. Um, so thanks for sticking around, Adam. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I might be unfamiliar with the format here. I, I, was, I wanted to ask Adam a question. So yeah, you're saying that you kind of zero in on the hardest fight you see. I love that you did an episode on drone strikes. Um, I also wanted to comment your rationale strikes me as very similar to Rod Sterling, uh, his rationale behind advertising journalism and the Twilight Zone. So mm. I see you joining a proud tradition there, uh, the way you were talking love about that. that. Um, let's see. I also feel like Obama in particular, very traditional in like reframing and just trying to generally outsmart people that he interacts with. So I'd love to know <laughs> if you want to elaborate a little bit more on how he approached that conversation. Right. They, they, they bit you off um, as as, you know, like somebody to bring on a Netflix show through their organization. And I was just kind of curious, like, yeah, if you care to elaborate on that a little. Oh, well, to, to your – sorry, say your last point where they, they brought me on a Netflix show too. Sorry, was that again? Yeah, I was I was a little curious if they knew what they were getting themselves into, you know, if, if you're kind of taking <laughs> this polemicist approach, right? <laughs> so, yeah, like um, – yeah, I'm just very curious. Yeah. They, was it just damage control at a certain point? They didn't want to like – you know, they didn't want to do more damage and the Streisand effect or like – yeah, I'm curious what, what your sense of that was. Look, I mean – they're political people, right? And so to me, it's a matter of when we when we got into it at the beginning, it was me putting it – I don't know if you've ever read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, but it's a an, an frank, frankly incredible book, uh, weirdly enough. One of the things it says is if you want someone to do something, tell them why it's good for them to do the thing, right? And so I was very clear with them. You guys don't want a show that is political propaganda. You don't want something that is just going to be the Obama's perspective. You want someone else's perspective. And they were like, yes, we do want that perspective. You're right. I was like, okay, great. I'm holding you to it, you know? Um, Now, look, I think the the argument that you could make against the show is that uh, they – vetted me they looked at all my prior work they were like adam's not gonna fucking blow the show up right he's not he's not a total fire you know like bomb thrower um we think we can work with him and maybe there are other people who they wouldn't have hired for that reason maybe i'm a little bit more acceptable where other people aren't maybe they wouldn't have hired you abby because you're you're more of a you know strident uh you know vocal socialist right than than i might be um i don't mean to put words in your mouth but uh and you know that's fair uh, but you know, it's the sort of thing that Rucker Bregman said to Tucker Carlson. It's like, you don't take your orders from Rupert Murdoch, but, um, they, you know, you're not offending Rupert Murdoch by being here. You're the person they chose to sit in the seat, even if you don't get the orders every day. Right. 
Um, but my goal was to try to break that every single time I did the show was to try to surprise um, the audience and surprise them. Um, and so when I had my conversation with with uh, the former president, which you can see in episode six, and by the way, all the episodes drop on Thursday, um, I had read his book. Um, I had, uh, you know, obviously see, I've grown up watching the guy, you know, I've seen him speak and I knew what he would say to every single thing I said to him, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I just sort of had in mind my follow-ups for, okay, he's probably going to say this. So I'm going to say that. And my goal was to just look, he's an incredible speaker, right? He knows exactly how to get his, me he knows what his message is. He knows how to get it across. He's one of the best communicators on the planet. That's why he became the president. Um, but my goal was to get him out of his rut that we have heard so many times, times and time again, and like, just give him a shove and try to get him to have a real conversation about this shit. And, you know, so, um, uh, he says, you know, I say, look, this episode's about change. You ran on hope and change. And, that was a very important thing for me. That was a formative moment of my political identity. But then I have to look around. Not as much changed as we thought. What happened? And then he said, I bet you could predict what he said. Uh, if you have heard him speak before, he said, well, we did the best we could under tough circumstances. And even a little bit of change is good. And, you know, even if we can get 10% closer, that's great. Right. I knew he was going to say that. And I said, yeah, dude, but 10% for climate change isn't enough. Right. Like we need more than that. Long arc of history. I've heard it before. Right. I'm a little frustrated. What do we do? Right. And, you know, that and combined with a couple other questions, we got to a little bit realer of a place, you know, um, and it's not like I was able to get him to, you know, completely break down and say it was I, uh, I know I suck. <laughs> right. Or whatever. Like, of course not. But at least we had a more interesting conversation than, you know, you might normally expect. Um, so I just tried to go in and be prepared. And, um, you know, uh, the, the proof will be in the pudding. I'm very curious to hear what folks like you think about it once you see it. Absolutely. To draw a very dark parallel, 10% uh, is about the accuracy of the drones. So. <laughs> <laughs> excellent i love it yeah no they're terrible technology they're they're awful and they they should not be used and and um that lies at his feet as it, that lies at his feet as it does at the feet of anybody who um who employs them absolutely well i think that we're gonna let you go adam and mike and i will take some more calls but please check out the g word debuting on may 18th it's Adam Conover, creator and host of Adam Ruins Everything, The G Word, The Crystal Maze, and Factually. Thank you so much for coming on Dosed, Adam. It was a great time. Thank you so much, Abby. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for, for listening and for your question, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen, for the call. And uh, we got some other callers in the queue. We'll take them. Uh, thanks for sticking around. Sorry we didn't get to take you when Adam was on, but we want to hear your voice. So I'm actually going to... Uh, take Dustin next. Dustin, come off mute. Tell us where you're calling from and hope you're happy just talking to Abby and I. Dustin, you are on mute. You got five seconds to come off before I boot you. Oh, there you are. Hi. Can Hi, you Dustin. hear me okay? Yeah. No, I'm so happy and honored to to be with you guys as well. I'm really touched by your conversation with Duncan, Duncan Abby oh, about cool. raising kids. So important to talk about. Um, 
My, my question is one of practicality. Like we have a lot of um, understanding now about these issues and that's excellent. But um, in terms of productive um, suggestions of actual, you know, solutions to some of these problems, um, not that I would propose them, but like how can we find a space to propose them? Is Twitter safe now that Elon has it? I mean, I, we're getting like more... <laughs> Uh, we're getting anti from Taylor Green and Trump. Uh, Chomsky said, "Hey, you're you're breaking up there, but I, I you are breaking up, but I think I heard I heard your point about how a lot of the Democrats right now are the ones opposing the you know the billions of dollars to Ukraine, and the you know a couple." Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene are talking about how, you know, we need baby formula instead. I think it's a very cynical ploy. I don't think any yeah. of these Republicans really care about civilian life or social services. But to your point, it is very stark. Uh, the fact that, you know, there's a couple lone voices out there who really kind of shame um, a lot of Democrats who are not opposing this proxy war that is really, really deadly and really horrific that continues to go on and on without any sort of urging of diplomacy from our president who could really make an end of this war happen overnight. So it's very cynical and disgusting. Um, also, in terms of Twitter, I think that we should look at Elon Musk like we do every other billionaire who owns a major communications platform, because it's really no different at the end of the day than a Jeff Bezos or, or a Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, Elon Musk just... He's posing as a free speech warrior, but if you look at what his trajectory has been and his belief system, it's actually pretty problematic, especially because he is a weapons manufacturer. He's a fucking, um, he's a rocket manufacturer, and he is subsidized by the U.S. government. He's providing Starlink systems to help drone strikes in Ukraine. He is kind of in a similar vein, like all these other billionaires who are essentially assets of the military-industrial complex. I mean, he is kind of another one of these guys. He's already said some really kind of disturbing things about how the, the far left and the far right need to be equally, you know, unhappy with his management of Twitter. It's just a lot of weird things he's putting out there. I don't know how it's all going to go, Yeah. but I don't think that we should have any hopium because at the end of the day, I think enlisting optimism in someone like Elon Musk is just hopium. At the end of the day, it's drugging ourselves well, into complacency and thinking that there's this billionaire is different than other billionaires, when really, they're all billionaires, and the problem is the fact that billionaires own our media. Mm -hmm. Well, my question is, as po with the re redefinition of the word populism, can we, as a mm -hmm. nation, direct these funds a little bit? Like, Musk could really do a train system that would fix the suburban sprawl problem that I wanted to ask our, our guest about today. But um, localism, populism, um, you know, taking the take the power back <laughs> to be corny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I actually wanted to jump in because, um, you know, you mentioned, like, Mark, I mean, that Elon Musk thing, it's like, you know, like, yeah, like a train system would actually be awesome and super efficient. And it's definitely what this country needs, widespread public transportation. Uh, I think we have a better chance of those things coming to fruition through people's movements and kind of forcing those things to change at a national level, making the government invest in them, you know, massive infrastructure programs, uh, things like that. Uh, but when we look at populism, you know, like the, the U.S. does have a history of a populist movement that was uh, especially uh, multinational. And it was, uh, this is after the Civil War, and the U.S. government did everything it could yes. to crush it. And so, yes, there is a uh, rich history of a, a multinational anti-racist populist movement 
that had a lot of potential and so much so that the U.S. government and U.S. capitalism in particular thought that they needed to crush it. But I think one of the dangerous things right now is that we have people who claim to be populist, like Donald Trump, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Tucker Carlson, and this entire apparatus of so-called, you know, right-wing populists. And and I think people can say, oh, yeah, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene said something about baby formula I agree with, or Tucker Carlson said something about war or the working class that I agree with, and so isn't there a potential for allyship between the right and the left around populism? Populism is not a, a, a unity of right and left, and here's why. Um, it, when, yes, sometimes those people who call themselves populists, you know, the Steve Bannon types, the Tucker types, uh, they are a populist, I, I guess they use that term to describe, you know, working class, some working class issues, but it is always built upon racism and racist ideas. For example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all her comments about baby formula then shifted to illegal immigrants and how it's terrible that illegal immigrants are getting baby formula when, you know, good white American mothers aren't getting baby formula. And this horrific mass shooting that just happened in Buffalo by a white supremacist, by someone whose manifesto is basically like plagiarized from a Tucker Carlson transcript. Uh, no compromise is worth the price of fanning the, fames, of fanning the flames of racism. This is what the outcome of people like Tucker, right. people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, people who claim to be populist but are really espousing racism at its core, it leads to massacres of black people in particular, which has been the case this entire country's history. For centuries, this community has been dealing with it. And so, oh, even if you can yeah. say, okay, maybe Tucker gives space to an anti-war voice one every 10 episodes or something, is it really worth him being the main propagandist for the type of ideology that inspires people to go out and murder a bunch of people? And so I think anyone who's keeping alive right. uh, that flame of racism and fanning it uh, deserves to be treated as a, as a pariah. Um, anyway, I don't know if, Abby, you had anything else to say. We do want to grab our uh, next caller. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just wanted to add one thing. I yeah. think that when we're talking about uniting the left and right, and you know, and and it becomes about people like Tucker Carlson. I mean, it it is kind of a bizarre because it's so abstract. It's like Tucker Carlson is a multi-millionaire like cable TV host, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is a sitting politician. And for me, it's like, yeah, if I'm talking about uniting workers. You know, if someone's like racist, like how like how right wing are we talking about? Like if someone's just apolitical and they're just working class, like that's a completely different situation. If you're trying to build unity on things like, you know, wages or other working issues of workers like in an Amazon factory or something like that. But if we're talking about like uniting on the issue of war and people just keep bringing up people like Tucker Carlson or like Don Trump Jr. It's just very weird to me because it's like these people are are nowhere in like our political reality in terms of like people on the ground who are anti-war activists or who care about these issues. It's just to me it's all kind of very cynical propaganda to try to capitalize on a huge growing void of an app, you know, there's a huge absence of people who clearly um, who are speaking about these issues, especially in the mainstream. So I think that we have to be careful about um, our outrage being manipulated and weaponized by bad political actors. Thank you, Dustin, very much for your comment and your call. And uh, we're going to go to Joshua. Joshua, come off mute. Tell us where you are calling from and what you got to say. Hey, Abby. Uh Mike, uh, I really appreciated uh, you bringing on the guest, uh, Adam Conover. I've been a fan of his work for years. I didn't even know about the G Ward until y'all brought him on. So that was great uh, publicity for him, at least for me. 
I'm uh, originally from Louisiana, but I'm currently in West Virginia for a job. Uh, one thing that I thought might be a, a part of what he could do for the G word is not just focus on what the government is currently doing that surprises us, which he was inspired by Michael Lewis's book, but things the government used to do, but is cutting back too much on. Mm. And I know the subject of uh, media is a topic in that, for example, uh, public broadcasting. I mean, just how much the government used to fund it from the 70s, where it was 100% funding. And now you got places like NPR, I think only about 2% of its funding actually comes from the federal government anymore. It's mostly just nonprofits where you have these billionaires. Koch Brothers is a good example. If you know the story about Citizen Coke, that was a documentary that was supposed to be funded by PBS, but one of the board members was Charles Koch. And they axed it. So he went on, I think it was Indiegogo or GoFundMe or something, and raised three times the budget that he was promised from PBS and made the documentary Citizen Coke to cover the subject that was the problem why it was cut in the first place. Wow. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of cases like that. I know uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, I think only about 15% of it still comes from the federal government, which is absurd. I mean, I think that would be another thing that if the federal government just did more of is just like these grants that didn't have any strings attached, that would help a lot with all these newspapers that are, you know, collapsing across the country, all these small towns where we get all this primary sources for stories on corruptions of local governments or whatever. A lot of that we're losing because so many of these newspapers just can't make money anymore. They're folding and then getting, getting consolidated and just getting taken out. Huge, hugely well described. That was a horrible way to answer you. Hugely Great, great point. Wow, my brain is completely fucking fried. Josh, let me try that again. Josh, great point. Totally agree. Um, I I will follow up with Adam about that for the next season of The G Word. He has to talk about all the shit that the government stopped doing, man. All the deregulation, Mm -hmm. all the horrible corporate control that's minimized all these important jobs that the government's done that that really Mm -hmm. has left us all all uh to fend for ourselves joshua it's a really really great point mm-hmm. and, and i love the uh, i loved y'all's uh topic earlier with i think it was dustin the caller about i don't know if y'all were trying to talk about reclaiming the word populism but just how much that word has become such a mainstay in our public discourse now where you have people on the right and left trying to use it uh i guess i guess it depends on just it as a mechanism you know, because and if you look at history, populism always springs up after a, a after a major economic crisis. You know, there's only been a few cycles in history. The The first major one before this current one is pretty much the 1930s. And that's where you had, you know, Sweden and uh, Germany and many of these other countries creating the first modern welfare states, which were all influenced by the United States. They all copied the U.S. They just copied the U.S. and just ran with it while we turned around and neglected it since the 70s, since uh, Reagan. And uh, now we're going through another era of populism because we're still living through the ripples of the global financial crisis. And it's interesting that we're still feeling the repercussions of it, whether you have these faux populists like Marjorie Taylor Greene and you still have Trump, which looks like he might run again for president, which God knows where that will go. Because we don't exactly have a populist on 
the Democrat or the left side that's mm-hmm. up there, or at least we did. But, you know, you had forces against them, like Bernie Sanders, that stopped them from getting the nomination. And now it looks like it's going to be Biden versus Trump unless something really changes. And that's not encouraging. So no, you're what, right. what did y'all think about well, where this could go? It really sucks that the right wing has siphoned very legitimate energy and legitimate grievances, right? Because the Democrats mm-hmm. have completely abandoned working class people. And so you have this rhetoric that's able to be capitalized on and exploited in a really cynical way. And that's exactly what we saw Trump do. When you actually look at the policies of people like Rand, Ron DeSantis or the Trumps or the Bannons, mm-hmm. there's real, there's no real tangible populist policy that goes behind that. Thank you so much for your call. Really appreciate you calling in and your comments. Uh, that is the Lance. end. Lance has been on. Oh, Lance. Do you want to take Lance? Yeah, let's take Lance. He's been on since the very beginning. All right, Lance, we're going to let you on, but we don't have a lot of time for you. Sorry. Lance, we're so Come sorry. Come off mute. Where are you um, calling from again? I know you're a repeat caller. Where... Hello? Yeah, I was in Central New York. Lance, what's up, Mike? Oh, what's hey. up dude? Lance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, the whole thing with uh, interesting show, the Netflix show sounds really interesting and all that. Um but I, I, I harp on the fact that the 10% has to get involved. In other words, let's go all the way back to Mao's little red book, you know, uh, that it could start with academics. The bourgeoisie, like the, uh, in Europe, uh, post-feudalism, they didn't have power, but they had some wealth and they, you know, changed things. Hanseatic League, all that league. Uh, you know, it could be academics, it could be the workers, but eventually the elites have to adopt it. You know, if the elites or we don't make adopt them. the revolution, it never happens. And that's what happened in the 70s, right? Nixon, who was not a Rockefeller Republican, as we used to call it. There really were liberal Republicans. He was bona fide, called himself a conservative and all the liberal stuff. Everybody knows now that got through the EPA and a lot of other things and some civil rights stuff, too, and a lot of voting rights and everything. That's because he had to, because the 10 percent, the elites, were forced him to. They wanted clean water. That was the hippie, you know, right off the 60s. And, yeah, we want we want change and we want, you know, good progressive stuff. And as Ralph Nader, as Chris Hedges pointed out, there was a strong – he got tons. Ralph Nader did tons of legislation passed because mm-hmm. there was a conduit. There was real progressive among the Democratic Party. That's dead. That's just gone. Um, you know, it just doesn't exist anymore. And so the, there is no – there's no conduit through which to make these things happen, and the elites aren't going to do it. So it's, it's now the revolution has to be fought against the very group, you know, that was the ones that fomented the change that happened post 60s or during the 60s. It was the 10% elites, the liberal left, you know, the Berkeley crowd and Brandeis University crowd and all the various, like uh, Abby Hoffman said, the various tribes. And it was college educated elites that said, we ain't playing. We want no war. We want clean water and clean air. Well, I guess the elites now figure that they got it so good, they don't care anymore. So that's where the, the fight has to go to, is to the elites themselves, because they're not going to be right. on board anymore. And it's got to be a third right. party. You're right, man. And this you is know? this is definitely something to grapple with, is the fact that the conduit that was available to us before is no longer available. It's been completely dwindled down to just a few people left. And we have to fight, Lance. We can't let this country get away from us for future generations for the survival of this planet we have to fight we have to organize and we have to win thank you so much for tuning in to dosed we'll see you next time 
Thanks again to our live audience. If you're not listening to us live and you're listening in the future on Spotify or Apple Music, join us live next week. Our next episode is actually going to be Saturday, May 21st at 2 p.m. We are having on a guest that was supposed to be on May 1st, but we had to reschedule with him, Daniele Bolelle. Very excited about. If you don't know who he is, look him up. Get pumped for the next episode. Thanks once again to our live audience. We love you. And uh, join us live if you have not. And uh, you're listening to music today from Anahedron, A-N-A-H-E-D-R-O-N. Check him out if you want some more of his tunes.